The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Another, and the language used there is really similar, like clothing. I was really tempted to wear something today that you would consider completely and totally inappropriate for a pastor to be leading and teaching in church. And I don't mean like scandalous, but I mean like gym clothes or something like that. I just have this thing called pride that wouldn't let me do that. But the idea being this, if I came up here in sweatpants or shorts and a t-shirt or something like that and just started teaching, most of you guys would walk out of here after service, not talking about the message that was given, not talking about the words that were said, but you would go out going, what was the deal with that? You'd be going home, talking to family on the phone, saying, we had this weird thing happened at church. It, it doesn't make any sense. He was wearing all this, and you would find that the thing that I would, the, the clothes that I was wearing up here on stage, there are things that I could wear up here that would be a complete distraction to the actual message that would be given. Instead of focusing on the words, you end up focusing on this, because there's a time and a place, and we understand that, do we not? There's a time and a place. There is a place for sweatpants, and it's right after Thanksgiving lunch, Amen. There's a place for certain clothing. There's a, a time and a, there's things that are appropriate and things that are not. When it's 30 degrees and you're at a football game sitting in a shade freezing all day, that's an appropriate place to be wearing sweaters and jackets and coats and all those kind of things. It is fitting with your environment. But, but in addition, there's clothing and there are things, the way that we adorn ourselves and the way that we present ourselves that are appropriate based even on who we are, the way we carry ourselves, what you do for a living. A police officer, you would expect to be dressed in a certain type of clothing, a certain uniform. It, it denotes who he is. It helps us understand who he is. It even broadcasts, if you will, some of his authority to the people around us. And that's helpful. And so in the same way you go, there's certain ways that we can carry ourselves that are helpful to who we are and what we do. And there's certain ways where it actually becomes a hindrance and a problem. And, and so Paul's using this same kind of language, the idea of putting off and putting on. And he talks about the old man, the old person who we were before Christ. We put that off and put on this new man. And then you can go through the text. But this is what it looks like. The new man, we put on this and this and this and this. And that's what can cause and has historically for a lot of times caused people when they study this passage and teach this passage to just go through all the do's and don'ts on here. So this is what you got to do. And this is what you got to do. But there's something actually interesting, and we in, in our current you know, culture, time, whatever you want to call it, are really blessed, especially having people, seminarians and, and commentators and, and all these kind of people that have kind of gone before us and done so much of the work that we're benefited from. We have the ability to understand Scripture with regards to the context and the language and the way they were talking in the past in a way that a lot of people actually even haven't. And so, for example, in this particular text... This same kind of theme is reiterated in the book of Colossians. If you want something that you can read this week that's going to kind of parallel what we're going through in Ephesians, Colossians is sort of the commentary, if you will, for the book of Ephesians. They're really similar. They talk a lot about identity and because of who we are in Christ, this is how we should be. And in the language there and in parts of the language here in Ephesians as well, there's something that goes on in the actual text. When it says that you're to put off and to put on, there's clauses that are used in the original language that if I even pronounce this right, this is how bad my English is. They are aortist participles, if I'm not mistaken. In English teachers, did I nail that one right? Aortist, is that right? Sounds like a heart thing, but I think it's a word. Aortist, right? But, but the implication would be more like this. Hey, not so much saying, hey, 
don't do this, don't do this. Put off the old man and put on the new man. The, the emphasis is more like the old man has been put off and the new man has been put on. And because of that, this is what life looks like. See, for, for us to take this and just go, hey, you're Christian, so you gotta do this and this and this and this and this is how you be a Christian. No, the emphasis, no, no, no. That's not how you be a Christian. You already are. God has already changed you in this way. And maybe your life doesn't look exactly the way it needs to. Sometimes that happens. I mean, some of you guys right now are already putting Christmas trees up in your house. And usually the, the, the room that you put the Christmas tree in the living room, it doesn't go from nice setup for Thanksgiving to instantly nice setup for Christmas, right? There's some disorganization that happens in between. You got to move this furniture over here. You got to move that over there. You got to move that chair. You bring the tree in. There's needles everywhere. The whole place is a mess. You got to clean all that up, put it up. Eventually everything gets put back together. And that's the picture you put on Facebook, right? But the disorganization part sometimes is part of it. And the same thing is true. You have had the old man put off and the new man has been put on. And you may not yet look like the Christmas tree picture in the end. You may look a little more disorganized at the moment, but God has and is doing a work. And Paul's saying here, look, something has changed in you. The idea is not you've got to go do this, but he's returning them and returning us constantly to the idea of identity. He's saying, hey, if you do this, he's not saying, excuse me, if you do this and this and this and this, you'll be a Christian. He's saying, Christian, you've been changed and you need to be reminded of who you are. You need to be reminded of what might be appropriate for who you are and for the life that you are, for the mission that God's given you. you you're not like that anymore. We are like Lazarus. Lazarus, who was wrapped in burial clothes and put into the grave, and yet Jesus comes, calls him out of the tomb, and he walks out, and what does Jesus say after resurrecting him from the dead? He says, take those off, loose him from those binds, set him free. And that's who the Christian is. We have been raised from the dead by Jesus Christ and we still got some burial wraps on us. We might still have some stink and dirt and grime on us, but we are in a process of being changed. And he's saying, don't walk around in these burial clothes anymore. You don't need to hang around the tombs anymore. You're not dead. You're alive. Instead of burial clothes and somber clothes and, and burial wraps, instead, you don't get it. You're going to a marriage feast. And you wouldn't wear that to a marriage. You're going to a party, guys. You're going to life. And he's calling us to be who we are. Not to attain some level and change ourselves. But he's saying, you've been changed. Now, come on. Be this. This is the, the thrust here. This is what we're doing. And so everything that comes after this is not a call to, you've got to change. It's more of a, no, this is who you are. Walk in this. Understand who you are and be this. And so what does this look like? Well, it's, it's not a complete list. You can read through a lot of Paul and Peter's different writings in the epistles and see all sorts of, of things. This is not a complete list. Maybe, maybe this is a list of things that the Ephesians in particular struggled with. And Paul knew that because he was writing to a specific audience. Or maybe, and I tend to believe these are things he just knows Christians in general are going to be susceptible to. Because as you go on into chapter 5, you talk about all sorts of stuff. He's going to really hang hard on things like language and the way we talk today. But don't worry, come January and we hit chapter 5, we're going to hit all sorts of other things as well. But Paul's just saying, know who you are, Christian. You're a child of God. 
You're, you're not just some dude in a tomb. You are a child of God, joint heir with Jesus Christ. And walking in that, this is what you would look like. Not this, but this. And so we look at this list. What is it he says? Well, he starts off with, what does a Christian who's walking in the new self look like? Number one, you just tell the truth. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So he's tying back into the unity again. We're members with one another here. We are connected in the body of Christ. And one of the things that we do as family here in the body of Christ is that we're just honest with one another. We tell the truth. The Colossians, again, as I said, is the parallel to this. Colossians 3, 9 puts it this way. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with, his pra- with its practices. So think of it this way. Jesus himself, when he was walking the earth, said to his disciples and to those who were listening, he made statements that described himself. And one of the famous ones, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I'm not, he doesn't even just say he's truthful. He says, I am the truth. There is no lie about me. There is no darkness in me. I am the truth. Now, on the other end of this, we have Satan. And what does the scriptures refer to him as? The father of lies. He's the father of lies. It's an interesting way to phrase this because here we are as Christians being adopted into the family of God. And we've got a father on one side who always tells the truth. He is the truth and the life. And then we got a guy over here who also says he's a father, father of lies. And so he says to the Christian, which family are you a part of? As a Christian, you're, you're a, not to be walking in deceit like this over here. You're not in this family. You're in this family, and we walk over here. We follow the example of our Father who tells the truth, who is the truth. And so what does that mean practically? Well, well it means, for one thing, we don't just lie to one another in, in general. We don't lie about our golf scores, guys. We don't lie about our age, girls. We don't, we just don't, we we don't have this desire in us to try to deceive people. And, and one of the reasons, and this is why it's really important the way Paul ties this to identity. One of the reasons that we lie most commonly is because we're trying to make ourselves look like something we're not. We're trying to make ourselves look better. We want to make ourselves look skinnier. We want our running times to be faster. We want our golf scores to be better. We want our income to be better. Like all of that kind of stuff. And we all do this. I see this among pastors all the time. And this, is, this cracks me up, right? So, so there can be this tendency to kind of exaggerate a lot of times when it makes you look better. And so you can be like at a pastor's conference or something and you're talking to these other pastors and everybody's like, trying the false humility thing, but you know what they're doing. How big's your church? That question always comes quick. And they're always like, oh, I'm like a thousand. Oh, I'm like, you know, 1500, whatever the case may be. But, but then at one point we as a church, we were looking into this computer software that's sort of like a community builder and it would give everyone in the church a login and the ability to interact and be able to, it's almost like a Facebook for churches, but you get announcements out and all this kind of stuff and they price it based on your attendance. The numbers change when that happens. How big's your church? Oh, well, we're like, I don't know, maybe 600 on a good day. Like suddenly like money's involved. And so you're not like, you're not inflating your number to try to make your church look bigger. Suddenly you're like, oh, this is gonna cost me. Now we're small, we're small. 
We, we have a tendency to do that. Fishermen? See, I'm a pastor and a fisherman, man. That's like double jeopardy, right? And, and, and I know this, like, fishermen are always, it's, the fish get bigger and bigger as the years go by and all this stuff, right? You guys know how this works. But I, I have to say this, and I'm not doing this to kind of pat myself on the back. It's still prideful in a way if you think about it. But, like, to me, I am super hardcore, like, make sure the measurement is exactly what it is. Like the biggest steelhead I had ever caught at one point was, well, at still point, was uh, 29 and a half inches long. And it was a big, fat, huge steelhead. And I was fishing with this one guy and uh, we caught it, we measured it out. And I wanted to hit that 30 inch barrier, which on the Rogue River, that's a big steelhead. So I wanted to pass that 30 inch barrier. By the way, everyone you know that fishes says they caught a 30 inch steelhead on the road and on the Rogue and they all are lying. I just want you to know that right away. Everybody's like, oh, I caught a 10-pounder. There's so few 10-pound steelhead in that rogue. They're just, they're, it's six pounders. But anyway, so, so here it is. It's 29 and a half inches long. And my friend's like, dude, that's, a, that's 30 inches, man. Just round up. What's the harm, right? But I even told him, I was like, no, it's 29 and a half inches long. And to me, it was almost even like, because I, I want the 30-incher to count one day, right? It was almost prideful. Like, I know that one's coming, and I want it to count. But that's just part of the nature of fishermen. Well, then I got a drift boat in the last year, and now I'm stuck. Can you put that image up? This is the inside of my drift boat. It has a ruler <laughs> engraved into the boat with the logo next to it, the truth. The truth. And you know what's awesome about this? Here's what's crazy about fishermen. I had to take a tape measure and check that. And the reason is, if you go to the local stores and buy fishing nets that have rulers in them, most of them exaggerate on purpose. They are designing measure nets to make you feel better about the fish that you catch. How ridiculous is that? So, but why do we do that? Because we want to look good. We want to be able to tell, I guess, oh, I caught a 30-incher. That makes me a better fisherman than you. That's what we want to do. Paul ties this back to our identity, and he says, you're part of the body of Christ. You have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and adopted into the family of God. What could possibly be better than that? Why do you need to lie anymore? When you understand who you are in Christ, you don't need to do anything else to impress. In fact, when you realize what Jesus did for you, you just want to lay yourself down. More of him, less of me. People that get closer and closer and closer to Christ, they're getting more and more humble because of a realization that I'm a child of God, me? Does he know who I really am? I lie about fish. And this is what Paul's doing. He's saying, look, you're part of the family of God. And you certainly don't need to lie within the family of God to impress someone else in the family of God because they are saved by grace too. It makes no sense. Know who you are and walk in that. And, have, and that's joy. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing. So we don't need to lie to one another to impress one another. And, and even further than that, the truth should become important to us then. Because it'd be really easy in those settings to go, it's 29, it's a half an inch, and we round up anyway. That's what they teach us in school. So it's fine. But no, there's a point where we as believers, if we know that Jesus is the truth, that that is part of the very character of who God is, we should value the truth. So it shouldn't be okay anymore to exaggerate fish, as simple and harmless and as silly as that might be. We value truth, and we desire to walk in truth with one another. Amen?
The second thing is, we're in control of our anger. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, there's a couple things to note here. First of all, he, he says, it would seem like it should say, do not be angry. But he actually says, be angry. Be angry, but do not sin. So right away, we understand there is a way to be angry and not be in sin. We see Jesus was filled with anger several different times in his ministry, but always a righteous anger. When the temple leaders were ripping off the people of God and causing a barrier between them and their ability to worship, Jesus was angry. When Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus and saw this, the, the effects of sin and the sorrow that this death had caused this family and the people are weeping and his friend is lying in a tomb decomposing, when he saw all of that, he was angry. There are places in Scripture where God and Jesus are absolutely angry. So anger in itself is not a sin. The issue is what do you get angry at? And we tend to only get angry at things that affect us. Our pride and our own sense of entitlement tends to determine our anger more than God's word and God's values. So we don't get as angry as we should about injustice that we see in the world, but we get angry when someone pulls out in front of us in traffic or cuts in front of us in line at In-N-Out or at the mall or when people are rude to us because it's offensive to us. But instead, we need to, to redirect that. We need to understand these are the things that anger God. When people die without Jesus, the effects of sin, those are the things that we should have righteous anger about. But it's interesting here. It says here, be angry and do not sin. But then he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So think about what he's saying here. Hey, be angry. It's okay. Like there are things that it makes sense and it is right that you would be angry about, but put a time limit on it. Don't just be angry forever. Put a time limit. If you can work it out, if you're angry at that person, figure it out that day. But don't let that hang out forever. Like, he's putting a time limit on that. Why would he do that? Well, like I said, there's a place for, for righteous indignation. But I think the scriptures make it pretty clear that, that the idea is anger can be very subtle and can drift so easily into sin, even when it starts in a righteous way. Like, we as Christians are really good. I'm going to use an example here in a minute. Might step on a few toes, so if you need to leave, go now. But we as Christians are good at righteous indignation, putting things on Facebook, all that kind of stuff. We see, but, but there's a place where that drifts away from a righteous and good anger, and it can drift into things like bitterness, which he's going to mention in a little while. And anger in and of itself can keep you from doing the things that you need to do for the people who need it. Like there, there might be someone that needs your help, but you can become angry about a situation. So you're in, you end up withholding the very mechanisms by which maybe God wants to show grace to that particular person. Or we're really good at finding ways to define our own anger as godly, righteous anger, when maybe not always it is. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But the idea is this. At the very least, Paul's saying, okay, you're angry. Someone has wronged you and they deserve anger. And the wrong that was done is wrong. Like God is angry at that sort of sin. That sort of anger is righteous. All right, but put a time limit on it. Figure it out. 
Work it out. Don't let the sun go down before that anger because you're in danger of that leading into bitterness and damaging your own heart. And even if you're not able to get to that person to reconcile that situation, at the very least, turn that thing over to the Lord so you are protecting your own heart from being pulled towards sin and away from a righteous indignation towards sin. It's so subtle. Satan's really good at what he does. You know that, guys? He's really good at what he does. And something as simple as indignation towards sin, he can twist and pull you actually into sin through those very same things. And he's saying, be careful, understand this, watch out. And he also, by the way, lots of verses on this. James talks about how um, the, the anger can, is like a ship, like our, our anger is a dangerous thing. Romans talks about private vengeance is not something for us as Christians, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. So even when someone has wronged you, no matter what it is, there's a place where you have to forgive them. You've got to turn that over for your own soul's sake. You go, but, but, but I haven't gotten even yet, and I'll let my anger go when the score has been settled. That's not up to you. That's not you. For the sake of your own heart, God says, no, you got to let that go. Let me work that out. And I assure you, no one, not you, not me, not one person in the church or outside of the church, no one's going to get away with sin. No one. God is a righteous judge and he's better at that than we are. And we need to just be able to trust him. And one of the reasons we have to be able to do this, especially within the church, kind of leads into the third thing on his list here. Verse 27, he says, give no opportunity for the devil. The the connection here is to what was just previously said. Paul's saying, listen, be angry, don't sin. But in your anger, and he's talking to the church that he's pushing unity for, right? In your anger, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give Satan an opportunity. What does he mean by this? Well, let's look at a couple of verses. Let's look at Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. It says this. I think we have a slide for this. Yeah. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Now, you look through this list and you look at what we're studying here, and this list is also, by the way, paralleled again in Colossians, and you see some similarities here. It's talking about lying, discord, forgiveness, these sorts of things. And, and here it says, specifically focus on verse 19, one of the things that the Lord hates, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among the brothers. If there is ever an avenue by which Satan, who is a master manipulator, has avenue to come in and cause discord amongst the church of God, it's through anger. Because again, our anger tends to be over issues that deal with our own pride, our own, our own entitlement, the things that we feel like we want. So here's what can happen. Someone in the church offends you. Whether it was an offense that was an absolute sinful, like they deserve wrath kind, or whether it was your own pride and they just hurt your feelings and it's just stupid and you need to get over it. Whatever the case is, someone has offended you and you have opportunity, anger's building up in you. When that happens, you've got a choice to make. You've got to decide, am I going to give this over to the Lord? Am I going to humble myself and even go through the difficult work of forgiving someone in this situation? Or am I going to hang on to it? And I'm telling you right now, Satan is begging you, hang on to it. They deserve it. 
they're wrong. You're right. Hang on to it. And Satan has over and over and over and over used these sorts of situations to sow discord within the church. I told you guys, I think, a story when we were in earlier in Ephesians about how there was a church that was a huge influential church in Texas that ended up dividing and going to court and suing one another. And in court, when they really tried to figure out where did this division start, it went all the way back to a church dinner where an elder was served a smaller piece of ham than a child that ended up getting, sitting down next to him. And he was offended. And he held on to it. And discord began. And it led to the point where now there were two completely even different churches. And then they're in court suing one another. Paul's really aware of this. You can see him talk about things like this. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he understands that when division is there, when anger's there, when emotions flare, those are opportunities for Satan to sow discord. And so he's very cautious about this. Look at 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10. I think we have a slide for this one, right? Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now, why is he forgiving? Look what he says. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In this story, or in this particular letter, he's talking about someone who had committed a heinous sin in 1 Corinthians 1. He addresses it in, or excuse me, he addresses it in 1 Corinthians, this heinous sin. Like they need to be disciplined. There is something that needs to be dealt with here. But then when he writes them later on in 2 Corinthians, he's saying we need to forgive them even for our own sake. And because we understand Satan is constantly looking for opportunities to sow discord amongst you. So even Paul himself, who would be really easy to read and go, that's like the most opinionated, maybe even sometimes reads hard-headed, the stances he takes, you can see clearly like he's cautious about this. He understands our heart, especially when anger and unforgiveness is involved, is a breeding ground for division within the body of Christ. And he's pushing unity, unity, unity. And then in verse 28, do not steal. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The Christian doesn't steal. It says that the guy who was a thief before Christ, now that he has been saved and adopted into the family of God, something's changed. And so, so he's not stealing anymore. Now he works with his own hands and he labors. And then there's this thing that's added into it that is beautiful. And, and here's why this is brilliant writing by the Holy Spirit through Paul in this particular case. This verse right here gets used all the time by people that want to, to just condemn those who are asking for handouts. They would say the, to the guy on the street corner or to, to whatever, the bum that you see, that guy needs to just go like the scriptures say, and he needs to go work with his own two hands and he needs to go earn the things that are given him. Now, but here's what's interesting. Paul's talking here about stealing. Obviously, we would say Christians are not to steal. That's obvious, right? I mean, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. That's obvious. So if any of you don't fully understand Christianity, but you're going out to the store and doing some of this, putting stuff in your jacket, let's just clarify that just in case. That's wrong. Everybody say wrong. That's wrong. We're all right on that, right? But, but look what he ties it to. He actually is tying stealing into generosity. 
He ties even work of your hands into generosity. And he's saying, it's more than that. Like, look, you're not stealing anymore. In fact, now you're working hard with your own two hands so that you can help other people in need. And so the idea is this. Anytime we steal, we're only thinking about ourselves, right? I want this. I don't want to spend my money on that. I just want that. I don't care that you are going to be in loss because of that. I don't care that the store is going to have to figure that out in their profit loss thing. I don't care that you are going to be sad that your bike got stolen. Any of those things, I'm only thinking about me. But Paul says the Christian, this has been flipped now. And now as a Christian, you're working really hard with your own two hands so that you can more ably look after the needs of others and say, man, what does this guy need? How can I help this particular brother? It's not just about don't steal, but your entire trajectory of your life goes instead of a self-focused one to an others-focused one. You're no longer self-interested. Now you're looking out for others. And in fact, there's other passages that will talk about the fact that, that to withhold from someone good when you have the ability to do for them, it's another form of stealing because we don't even own everything anyway. Who is the author of all the good things we have? Who is the one who owns everything? As Christians, we understand we are just stewards of things that God has given us, but we don't own any of these things. We don't own any of this stuff. In fact, we're accountable for how we manage the things that we have. No, but I did like the scriptures. I worked hard with my own two hands. Okay, but you don't know the story of that guy on the corner. Absolutely, there's some guys who are thieves. Absolutely, there's guys who are out there with a sign asking for food or asking for money, excuse me, and are going to use it on drugs or going around the corner and getting their car and going to their home because they're lazy. Absolutely, some of that happens, but that's not everybody. There's people that have been wrecked in life. And there are stories, I've talked, especially after sharing a story with you guys a few weeks ago about some stuff I had gone through when I was young, many of you have come to me and been sharing very similar stories about stuff that you've been through. And I find so interesting so many times how a lot of us can go through some of the same things and it's only by the grace of God that maybe we've been protected from different outcomes as others. Like someone can be abused or or beaten as a child or something and somehow by God's grace they're protected and they go on to living a great life. And there's other people who were just as innocent at that time and went through the same sort of abuse and end up in things like alcoholism or horrible situations over there. And sometimes you just have to look back and go, man, it is just by the grace of God that I am where I am. And so in the same thing too here, whatever situation we are, we see someone else. The idea is not about self. The idea is about others, generosity. We work hard so that we can give. We don't steal. We work hard so that we can give. This is what a Christian looks like. It's kind of that Ebenezer Scrooge mentality. You know what I'm talking about? Can we go holidays? It's time, right? It's after Christmas. We can go holidays. It's the Ebenezer Scrooge thing, right? This is who he was before. Doesn't care that he's taking advantage of everyone else. By the way, that's another type of stealing in that story. Not paying employees what they deserve. Business owners, you know that? not paying a fair wage, taking advantage of employees. There's all sorts of stealing beyond just going to a store and sneaking something in your jacket. Being lazy at work, playing video games or surfing the internet during time that you're actually being paid to actually do a job. There's all sorts of other ways of stealing. But this is who he was. And then Ebenezer Scrooge has the scary dreams and wakes up the next day and he's like, ah, you have the day off and here's a turkey and you know, all that kind of stuff. Maybe a better biblical example would be uh, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, right? He was a thief. I mean, he was taken from people all the time. 
But then what happens? Jesus comes into his life, comes into his home, shares a meal with him, and this guy's changed, and he walks out of there instead of like, well, me, me, me. And he doesn't even just walk out and say, I won't steal anymore. But no, he becomes generous. I'm going to give back four times what I took from these people. This guy's life was changed because Jesus changed him. And Paul would say, so too, this is who you are. Number five, it's a tough one here. Christians watch their tongue. Christians watch their tongue. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I was tempted to actually break all these apart and do like whole sermons on each one of these because each one of these really is a sermon in and of itself. And language is probably more like a series than a sermon. You know what I mean? So, so he's talking a lot about language, about the way that our tongues can sow discord. Is about forgiveness, expressing forgiveness. He's talking about lying. But here he talks about corrupting talk coming out of your mouths. So what does this mean? Here's some other verses. Colossians 3 verse 8. Again, the parallel for Ephesians says this, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Let's talk about language for just a minute and let me try to keep myself from getting in trouble. Um, I probably have a little more lenient or uh, uh, some would say liberal view with regards to language than the, uh, the average person. I tend to go, some of these things are certain things in scripture that it's clear you're not supposed to just say, so you don't say it. There's other words that are cultural words. There's other language, names, things like that that the culture around us has sort of defined as a bad word or an inappropriate thing to say. Not all things, they don't always translate. I can remember one time being in Mexico when we were at the mission. There was a guy from England that came to visit. And he kept using this one word over and over. Starts with an F. I won't say the rest. He just kept saying it. And I'm like pulling him aside like, dude, you can't say that here. But from his cultural background, he just had no clue, had no understanding of how horrible that was in that particular setting. Like, dude, culturally, that does not work here, dude. Stop it, please. So it was very, there's all kinds of cultural nuances. But the scripture here says something, and, and it ties in again. You are a child of God. You are part of the body of Christ. And so this is what he says, and he phrases it, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, or as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And James makes it really clear, the same mouth that can speak blessings can absolutely tear someone down. You know the old phrase, you're going to kiss your mama with that mouth? That means the same mouth that could kiss a mother and give blessing in family can be used over here in a different way that absolutely tears down and destroys someone. So people will ask me, can a Christian say a certain cuss word? I go, well, okay. If you want to get into the nuts and bolts and practicality of it, is a certain word bad? I mean, the Bible didn't even use some of these words. Is it a bad word? No. No, it's just a word. It's letters and sounds that got put together. But words have meanings. And the way we use words has intent. And so what's your intent when you're speaking language? Are you trying to build someone up? Are you speaking in such a way that is elevating the grace in the room around you? Or are you corrupting? Are you tearing someone down? And that's why even in Colossians, it uses things like slander and malice and all those things. Slander meaning I'm trying to tear someone down. I'm trying to ruin their reputation or just affecting the overall. You can affect the culture of a room even with the language that you use and the way that you talk. 
It's a really interesting and complicated and sometimes nuanced thing. My daughter and I actually were blessed this weekend with crazy good seats to get to go see the Civil War. It was crazy. Like the guy who gave us the tickets, he had told us they were great seats. We had no idea. And then next thing we know, we get to the game and we're like walking down and we keep getting closer. And we're like, this can't be right. This is not right. Like, this is not where I sit. And we end up 45 yard line front row right behind the Oregon State team. They were all, like the whole team's like right there. And it was incredible seats. And it was really cool to get to watch how the coaches and players are interacting. And that game started out a blowout, right? 31-7 at one point. You should have seen how the defense and coaches were talking to one another then. Pointing fingers. I can't, this one guy was going nuts. And he's like, I can't cover everybody out here. And he's yelling at his teammates. I gotta have some help out here and all this kind of stuff, even though he was the one that got burnt for the touchdown. But anyway, that's what he was doing. And so my daughter's sitting here next to me. She's never been to a football game in her life. And largely, I'll admit it, sheltered in a lot of ways in her life from TV or different things. And she's sitting there and she's hearing all this language. And she's hearing new words. <laughs> But here's the thing, even she could tell. You know what I mean? Like there were words in there that she's probably never heard before in her life, but in the context and the way they were being used right there, she knew there's something wrong with what's being said over here. There's, there's anger and malice and there's all this stuff going. Now that language changed in the second half when you Beaver fans got all excited and thought you're gonna win that thing, right? But, but even my daughter right then, and so it was funny, she would pull my jacket and go, Dad, did you hear what they said? But here's the interesting thing about it. So we get back to the hotel that night. We're there in Eugene and we're talking and, uh, and we're talking. It was an opportunity. It was a, a good teaching opportunity with my daughter. And, and she's asking about the language again because then on the bus ride back, someone was re- like, he made the Oregon State guys look like priests. And so, so we get back to, and he was a Duck fan, so we're equal opportunity here, right? But um, so we get back to the hotel and she's asking about all this language and everything. And it was an opportunity for me to say, well, well honey, here's the thing. People like that, that were talking that way, a lot of them, I would hope, a lot of them, they don't have Jesus. And so we hear that kind of language and we go, yeah, that sort of goes with the territory. She's like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, honey, we, we shouldn't be too surprised when we hear people without Jesus talk like they don't have Jesus. See, it's an identity issue. And this is just, this is who they are. This is all they are. But we, we don't talk like that anymore because that, we're not like that. And it's not about looking down on them. We're not like them. We're better than them. It's we have been saved by grace. God has graciously plucked us out of the dead and put us into the living. He's called us out of the tomb and into the living. So so our language is just different than that. So can a Christian cuss? No. How about that? That's just the easier way of saying it. Just no. Yeah, well, what about, and I, you, we'll make exceptions in movies, right? We're okay with language in Saving Private Ryan because the dude's leg got bro- blown off and they're going for reality, right? So here's my exception. If your leg gets blown off, there's some le- words you can say and I won't condemn you, all right? But o- otherwise, listen, it's not an issue of what we can and can't do. It's an issue of who we are. We are part of the family of God, and we're on a new mission. Think about it. Think of how many words in history have been used to the destruction of people. The Hitlers of the world that took a vulnerable people and raised them into such a fury that they were murdering millions of people. But then look at the words of Christ who throughout history have been used to build people up over and over and over again. Let me ask you, who are you? 
Are you a follower of Christ? Or, or are you outside of the family of God? Your identity determines who you are. And so, so we talk like that. And, and we try not to be that guy anymore. Are there certain words that you could try to get technical about and say that you can say? That's just a dumb argument when it really boils down to it because are we really gonna nitpick all the individual things or do we understand the reality that we have been saved by grace, not a to-do list, and so we don't live that way anymore. We now live out an identity of who we are. It's us laying our life aside and allowing the life of Christ to be lived out of us. And I'm pretty sure the life of Christ isn't going to sound like many of us have a tendency to talk at times. And so let God's grace flow out of you. Whether you're slandering someone, whether you're cussing, whether you're telling stupid sophomoric jokes, whatever the thing is, we as Christians, and here's, I, I love the way James Montgomery Boyce puts it. He says, here's why Christians are different. Everything we do in our life, we live under examination, self-examination. What it means is this, we're not this guy anymore. So in everything we do, we pause and go, does this glorify God? Is, is this what a child of God would do? Does this honor God? And if it doesn't, we just put it aside, whether it's technically bad or not. Even, isn't it interesting that even in language, Paul even says, as fits situations, we want that black and white to-do list because we are legalists at heart. And God wants you to live out an identity, not laws. God wants you to live out who you are, not this list of stuff. So he just keeps going back to the idea. You're a Christian. You're a child of God. And this is what that looks like. Be who you already are. And he goes in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for that day for redemption. The Holy Spirit, we forget sometimes, it's not just some vague spirit. It's a person. And the Holy Spirit exists, is here in the church to build us up, to serve one another, and to continue to grow us up into the image of Christ, which also means greater and greater unity with one another. And so just like a family member, like a mother who might watch siblings fight and not get along, it grieves God when we speak ill of one another. It grieves the Holy Spirit when there is disunity in the body, when there is backbiting and lying and all these different things that are absolute enemies to the personhood of Jesus lived out by us in the, in the church. When he sees these things, it grieves him. And so he summarizes these things in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, this is like a, 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 a catch-all, like he's just kind of bringing this to a little bit of a conclusion, it would seem. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, which is quarrelsome shouting, and slander, which is words meant to ruin someone's reputation, be put away from you, along with all malice, which is hateful intent, anything done with the, the intention of destruction towards the person, Let all, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And he keeps going back to this identity. Know who you are. You have been forgiven a multitude of sins. You have been shown incredible grace. And so you've got to be that person who allows that same grace to flow out of you towards everyone. You're for, of course you've got to forgive this person because look what God has forgiven you. Of course you're going to speak nice and kind to this person because look what you deserved and yet God didn't give that to you. On and on and on. Paul again says it in Colossians 3. It's the parallel. I think I have a slide for this. Put on then as God's chosen ones... Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Again, tying it to identity. Put on then who? As God's chosen one. Again, church, you are a child of God. And the interactions we have with one another in here are determined by that identity. You can continue to live in the grave clothes if you want. But God has picked you up out of that tomb and has set you not just to walk in light, but in his family. And he sees us, and that means we are all family in this room. And he's saying, live out that identity. Love one another. Forgive one another. And then there's this thing that translators messed up. I I think I've shared this with you guys many times before. The Bible, the way it's translated to us, it, it changes a few things, usually to help us understand the scriptures, but they tend to sometimes change things or add things to help us out. And one of those is punctuation and verse numbers. I don't know if you guys know this, but when Paul was writing this, writing this particular letter, he didn't go, chapter 4, verse 25, therefore, having put away, chapter 4, verse 26, like none of that was there. In fact, there were no commas. No periods, no punctuation in this. It's just a block of words that were given. That's all it was. Um, somebody once told me that the way that we text and the capitals go away and punctuation's gone, all this kind of stuff that we're degrading. I think we're becoming more biblical, to be quite honest with you. That's just sort of the way it's supposed to go. But, but that's just the truth of it is. There was, none of that was in there. And so as translators were trying to help us and to serve us, and they did such a great job. Our translations are phenomenal. But as translators were trying to help us and serve us, they did things to try to break things up, add punctuation, help us in our current cultural context understand better what was being said. And usually in most places that's really helpful, but not here. Because we get a, we get a period on verse 32 and that's the end of chapter four and then chapter five starts. And so if we're following that, we stop here, we have our Advent series and in January we'll pick it up. But what did I tell you about the word therefore? What's the first word of chapter five? Therefore. So there's a connection here. Something being said at the beginning of chapter 5, and all, you guys are so scared, right? You know, you're like, oh no, how many verses now? I thought we were done. We were at the last verse, and now he's going into chapter 5. We're only going to do the first one. It says, therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, tying to that same argument, therefore, what does it say? Be imitators of God as what? As beloved children. That's the point. Guys, stop with the, can I do this and can I not do this? But, but instead, imitate God. So, so I go to this football game, and, and my daughter's there with me. Um, all four of us were supposed to go, and my, my youngest daughter woke up day of the game with a 102-degree temperature. And so my wife just graciously and sadly had to stay home and take care of Allie. And so me and Hannah went. If you got a text message from me at 5 o'clock in the morning on Friday and didn't answer it, that's your loss. Because I texted a million people trying to give those games away. Everybody in my phone, if you didn't get one, you're just not in my phone. I apologize for that. But, or someone took the game tickets first. That's what it was. Anyway, so my daughter and I go to this game. And we're sitting there. And it was really awesome. It, it ended up being like a really cool, special, like daddy, older daughter kind of time. So we're driving to the game. And we're literally playing YouTube videos, how to understand football, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so we go to the game. And here's what I started noticing. 
Like, I'm watching the game. I know what's going on. My daughter doesn't still fully know what's going on. So we'd be watching something sitting down, and I'd, I'd jump up, yeah, yeah. And she would be watching sometimes the field, but sometimes me. And when I would stand up and cheer, she would stand up and cheer. Half the time, not even totally sure what she was cheering about, but wanting to be like, Dad. Except for this one moment. <laughs> Can I just help you? This is a total sidetrack. They took away my clock, so I have no idea where we are on time. If we're late, my apologies. But listen, if you're ever at a sporting event, especially a major college sporting event, especially a major college rivalry sporting event, especially in Autzen Stadium, known as one of the loudest stadiums in the world, don't ever tell someone sitting in front of you to sit down, please. Like, just don't do that. That's just not appropriate. And that happened at one point during the game. And at first, I'm trying to like, uh, uh, okay, and trying to sit down and, uh, and all this kind of stuff. And this lady starts waving at me finally. And I guess it's just she's in the expensive seats and it was just that. But whatever it was, she's like, will you just sit down? And finally, I was just like, ma'am, you're in Austin Stadium. I'm sorry, but n- no. And my daughter was like freaking out. She's like pulling on my jacket. And I'm like, what, honey, what, honey? She, no joke. She goes, dad please don't get us kicked out of the game. (laughs) It was so funny. It was so funny. But the rest of the time, she's watching me. And she's like wanting to learn about the football game. And she's wanting to spend time. And like we're high-fiving and all this kind of stuff. And I got to tell you, like I was so blessed by that. And then last night, the Notre Dame-Stanford game's on. And I'm watching in the living room. And Hannah comes walking in to say goodnight. And she sees the game's on. She's like, what's going on? I'm like, actually, honey, it's 35 seconds left and Notre Dame might be about to win this thing. Ooh, can I sit down and watch? Yes, you can. Have a seat. And we watched it. It was just awesome. And I found this part of me, like, I loved that she wants to be like me. But here's the problem. She shouldn't want to be like me. Like, a, a daughter wants to be like her dad. And us as dads, we love that. But, but dad, have you ever then found that? Yeah, but gosh, she still thinks I'm like her hero. She doesn't understand how bad I'm going to let her down. She doesn't remember the times I've got frustrated with her when she doesn't deserve it. Or at least she plays it off if she does. She doesn't know my deep, deep flaws. There's a sense in which it's sad that she wants to be like me. And I'm so thankful that here Paul says, we're to be imitators of God as his beloved children. We have a heavenly father Think about the things we just covered. We have a heavenly father that never, ever lies to us, ever. He always speaks the truth. We have a heavenly father that instead of discord between him and us and division between him and us, who gave his son that we might be reunited with him. We have a heavenly father who his very words, even at times when they're uncomfortable to hear, they're given to us that we might be built up. Like even some of these things I'm talking about, some of you guys instantly felt guilt and conviction because you know there's areas in here that you need to go deal with. And it can be difficult and painful and we can even get divisive about it. That stupid pastor, he doesn't know what you're talking about. Yeah, but that's beside the point. The issue is this, God's words are always true and his desire is to constantly build you up. So even that conviction you're hearing from God's word, it's for you, not against you. We have a good father who's not slanderous wanting to tear down our reputation, but who would give his own life that we might be exalted and be put in the most preeminent place anyone could ever hope for, child of God. And he says, be like him. 
This is what we, church, are called to. We are called, and the reason it's even called the body of Christ is we manifest Jesus to everyone out there. So the way you talk as a Christian teaches people about Jesus. The way you act as a Christian teaches people about Jesus. Because for some people, they're not going to ever pick up this book, or certainly not before they come to Christ. For many people, the first exposure they will ever have to the person of Jesus Christ is you. And that is a privilege and an incredible burden as well. But then we go back to the grace of God and we're just thankful. So may we walk this way. May we walk as people of God. May we desire to be like him and understand these things. Listen, Christian, you're not the same anymore. You have been changed. Whether you're walking in it right now or not, you have been changed. So put the grave clothes aside and desire to a greater and greater degree to walk in your identity as a Christian, as a child of God for the sake of those around you, for the sake of unity in the body, and to glorify a Father who is so blessed as we choose to walk like Him. What dad isn't blessed when his kids want to be like him, huh? And so this week, we can worship Him, not just in song, but as we leave, we can worship God by desiring to be like Him. Amen? Will you stand with me? Oh, I didn't do that bad. It's 1125. Nice. Maybe I'm better off without the clock, right? Uh, let me pray for you guys. God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that, that you love us so much that you would even give it to us in the first place. I thank you, God, that you love us so much, that you desire better things for us, that you don't just leave us to figure things out on our own. You don't just leave us to wallow in sin, but that, God, you do have a future and a hope for us, and, and you've sent your son to save us and your spirit to grow us. And I pray, God, that your church would continue, Lord, to be grown by you and into you. Lord, help us to keep shedding these layers of this old man that we cling to still so tightly, Lord, and help us to understand to a greater and greater degree our identity as Christian. And I pray, God, that you would empower us by your spirit to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Lord, May we ever more desire to make you proud, but, but not trying to earn your love, knowing that it's already been given. But Lord, may we worship you in every sense of the word, not just in song, in spirit and in truth, in every step of our lives. God, give us graceful words to others. Lord, help us to hold our tongue. Lord, help us to change our attitudes. Help us to forgive. Help us to be more generous Prevent us, Lord, from continuing to only look after ourselves, but to bless others. Lord, I just pray more and more, may we just learn more and more of you, your goodness and your grace, and may we just grow more and more into that, Lord. So I pray, Lord, against any schemes of the devil to cause division in this room. And I pray, God, that instead unity would prevail by your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would grace each person here. Lord, there's many of us that, that feel there are things we need to do. There's course corrections we need to make. There's grave clothes we need to throw aside. And I pray, God, that your spirit would encourage us and empower us to do that. And may we trust you that you have our best interests at heart as we move forward. Lord, I pray your blessing on these guys as they go. May they just carry the joy and presence of Jesus Christ everywhere and in all circumstances. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, I love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday night. God bless you.